If you want to scale a recruitment business, you can't just keep adding heads and heads and heads. You have to build some of the infrastructure, which is going to support that growth. One of those things is career pathways. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Alex Elliott. This is Alex's second time on the show. So last time was way back in December, 2019, even before the pandemic. Alex shared the story of co-founding Liquid Personnel with Jonathan Coxon and how they scaled to a hundred million revenue business, the number one market leader in their space before exiting via sale to a private equity firm. Alex is now working with Strive, headquartered Manchester. Strive provides go-to-market professionals for disruptive VC-backed tech startups and scale-ups across EMEA and the US. Alex is also an investor and advisor in HR and recruitment tech startups. Alex, welcome. Good to see you again. Good to see you. December 2019. I've got no idea what we spoke about. Literally none. <laughs> well, so I'm probably just going to repeat myself loads, Mark, but I'll, I'll do my no, best to, to not do that. I'll make sure that we don't. And I'm going to refer people back to that episode. So believe it or not, it was episode number two of the podcast. So you actually Brilliant. helped launch the show. Um, and we talked in depth about Liquid, your how you scaled that business, how you went about attracting and recruiting and retaining people and developing them. That was kind of the theme of that episode. Brilliant. It was called Setting Up a Recruitment Business for Scale. Uh, so check it out, episode number two. And like... We, we're now over 175 episodes. We've reached almost 200,000 downloads. Uh, so when we had that initial conversation, like you kind of took a leap of faith. You, it, like it was really a start, uh, like the podcast was in its infancy and things have really just exploded since then. So thank you for helping me to kick off what's been an amazing run on this, uh, on this show. Oh, our absolute pleasure. I am um, ho hopefully it. It got some downloads, the, the second one. Um, not, nothing like nowadays, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's been, yeah, no, it's, it's been one of our top episodes of all time for sure. Uh, it was oh, such brilliant. a great story. What's awesome about it is you and John really went into depth. Like it wasn't skim across the surface, like, oh, aren't we amazing? You really gave so much detailed and actionable insight. I think that's why people appreciated it was, there was a, there was a lot of you know golden nuggets in there. Um, it wasn't just like you know highlighting the the good times or whatever. So so that's you've set a hard, uh, high bar that I expect you to um, deliver on today as well, Alex. Well, John John's not with me today, and I'm sure John was the one who was giving all the valuable insights previously. So I'll I'll, I'll do my <laughs> best this time on my own, Mark. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. By the way, I love your LinkedIn posts. And so, by the way, for our listeners, if you're not already following Alex, then be sure to check out his LinkedIn profile. So it's Alex Elliott with two L's. And for that matter, if you're not following me, then why the heck aren't you? Rectify that immediately. So, you know, go on to LinkedIn, follow both myself and Alex. I'm calling this out because I've noticed that a surprising number of recruitment leaders don't post. And they expect their teams to do it, but they're not leading the charge. They're not being a role model. And that's such a missed opportunity. So tell me about why and how you approach generating consistently good content on LinkedIn. Um, starting off with the reason why, I think because I've gone into the SaaS space, as you mentioned, Strive, we supply um, go-to-market professionals to sort of hyper-growth, you know, startup and scale-up um, tech firms. And, and one of the things I noticed early on sort of going into that industry, how exactly as you've described, a lot of the leaders, the sales leaders, the go-to-market leaders, and also just the CEOs within that space take personal responsibility for building their own brand, which in turn has a huge, potentially a huge positive impact upon the business's brand. So I think I, I saw that and I, I was kind of um, motivated to see whether um, we could do the same because maybe in recruitment, you, 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 you are right. Maybe the recruitment leaders don't do it as much or certainly maybe, maybe the last six or 12 months, you're starting to see that more and more. So I thought that was a, a good reason to start doing it because it would, it would be beneficial to strive. Um, I, I think you just get into a rhythm with it, don't you, Mark? It's like everything. So what you do on a day-to-day -day basis 
I think once you start to get into the mental mode of thinking that would be suitable for a post, I think your day-to-day work becomes quite easy because then you can effectively just keep a notes section on your phone of different things to talk about. The way that I do it is I just spend the Sunday afternoon when my wife is watching um, a cooking program or a baking program or a gardening program, none of which are particularly my favorite types of thing on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Mm-hmm. I'll literally sit there for an hour. And what I'll try and do is I'll bang out an hour's worth of, um, I'll bang out a week's worth of posts in that hour if I can. And then it's actually quite easy just to, what well, once you get into the habit of it, doing it once a week for an hour. I think the the, the real thing that I found which I wasn't expecting, which most is most challenging actually, is when you post is then that first hour or two engaging with all mm-hmm. the stuff that comes through because that actually can be quite time consuming. So you have to fit that in around the rest of your work. But um, I think the ideas come t- typically just from the day-to-day stuff that you do. And then you just have to try and systemize like everything that you do from a work perspective, systemize, be structured with regards to how you're actually going to create the content and then just make sure in, in your first hour of the day, you're allocating tasks, which give you the flexibility to actually then be able to respond and engage the people who um, engage with you. This is super interesting on so many levels. Number one is I 100% agree, like getting into a rhythm with something. And it's just like any other habit, whether it's running or working out or meditating or whatever you're making, you're intentionally trying to be consistent with is getting into that a rhythm so that um, it becomes a bit more automatic and you don't have to make yourself kind of uh, do it as much. Uh, you're in that flow. The other thing is you set, you've created a workflow that supports that habit. So you've got the Sunday afternoon um, habit of taking an hour to try and produce a week. Now, what is a week? Is that five posts? Is that three posts? How many are you doing per week? I typically do between three and five a week, yep. depending upon depending upon the week and what I've gone got on that week. Yep. So yeah, three to five is is normal for me. Okay. But again, it it depends a little bit on the quality of the content as well. If I if if in that hour I produce five, what I feel is good pieces of content, I'll probably post five. Yeah. Um. But then if if work situations will d- determine that as well. Okay. Now the third thing uh, I noticed is from what you just said, you bank the ideas. So you have a notes section on your phone for LinkedIn content. And as ideas come to you, you're adding them there so that when you sit down to write, you're not like coming up with them on the spot or looking at a blank screen. You have some ideas that you can you can already run with. Um, I noticed that a lot of your posts are actually about recruiting rather than about like SaaS or, or um, other topics. Like they're almost aimed at recruiters. What's your thought process behind that? All of my posts are aimed at either recruiters or recruitment leaders. And initially, the idea behind that was, again, from a brand reputation and a brand building perspective, once we get to sort of like that, that really um, proactive scaling um, phase at Strive, it's naturally going to be good to have that brand recognition. There's an awful lot of recruitment companies out there. Um, so any way that you can differentiate yourself is really valuable. Um, as time has gone on, interestingly, as I've started looking at more investment opportunities within the the tech space, what's been interesting is because I tend to invest within recruitment and HR tech, there's a natural alignment or symmetry there between the brand that I'm building and the the hopefully the credibility that I can demonstrate from my background and also some of the posts that I do. There's a natural fit there for. So actually from a deal flow perspective, it's been really valuable. Um, so so that's kind of the reason I've, I've I've stuck very heavily with recruitment. But then within our business, the, the, the guys all, they, they, they all post around different categories of topic. So what we're doing is we're, we're touch, touching lots of different buyer persona within either SaaS or recruitment from a seniority level, et cetera, and also from a vertical level. So we've kind of got a, a, um, a reasonably organic but blended approach with regards to the types of content which is going to be hitting with different types of buyer persona within the different markets that we work within. Awesome. I like that. And... If any listeners who are recruitment leaders are sitting on the fence on this, I, you've just highlighted one of the keys is remember you have three audiences. You've got clients, you've got candidates, you've got recruitment consultants, right? So your content mm-hmm. isn't all about clients or candidates. Remember, if you're scaling, that is, you have that super important audience of your existing and future team members 
And you need to position yourself as a leader that people respect, admire, and want to follow and want to potentially, you know, join their organization. And, uh, so it's, it's smart what you're doing. Um, I noticed also your content tends to be text only posts and you, what you're great at, uh, Alex is <clears throat> you've got a really strong opening hook. So that first sentence is critical to get people to sort of stop scrolling and click on the three dots to read the rest of the post. You've obviously studied this, worked on it, and your kind of craft of how to structure a, an effective LinkedIn post. Like, do you have a formula that you follow or how do you create that? Cause you get a lot of engagement on those posts, but like a way above average. And even given your number of followers, you have a high, uh, a high number of views and, and comments and likes, I would imagine. Yeah, it's not rocket science. I use ADA. So it's that yeah. old traditional sort of marketing framework, attention, interest, desire, action, um, or decision action, whichever way you look at that. So I think the attention piece, you, you've said it yourself, you've got to get like a, an interesting hook in early. I think LinkedIn has become more and more saturated with content. I, I've noticed that even over the last 12 months since I've started posting. So you have to be able to um, it's kind of that pattern disruptor, isn't it? When someone's scrolling through LinkedIn, why are they going to stop on your particular post? I think the key there is you've got to have quite a compelling um, first sentence, which is going to grab their attention. Yes. And then you need to follow that Ada framework to be able to keep them engaged within your particular content. It can't be too long. I think it has to be high quality. Um, I think you have to be proud of the content you put out. I think one of the challenges you've got with with content creation is like everything, I think it's really, really easy to beat the drum of you should be doing content creation and consistency is incredibly important. But it also does have to actually offer value and add value because I think it's very easy to go for like vanity type posts where you kind of do it, but then you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily offering any value. And if you're not doing that, you're probably not going to create much of a, a compelling case for people to want to engage with it on a consistent basis. So, mm. yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I use Ada as a framework. Yeah, no, it does. Hundred percent, Aida. So, attention, interest, desire, action. It's a good one. Um, we actually teach our clients how to create high value quality content consistently on LinkedIn. Are you? Do you teach your recruiters to do that? Like, how, or is it a KPI? Do you do you do you expect them to post as part of their job, or how do you approach that? Like, you're obviously the role model, you're setting an example, but is it optional? How does it work at Strive? It's, um, look, we've run, we've run a few incentives on it where we've encouraged people to do it, but we, we, we treat it as an option at this moment in time. We don't include it. We include, um, we include social media engagement and LinkedIn work as we describe it, whether that's social touches, whether it's, um, uh, voice notes, whether it's, effectively using LinkedIn to be able to engage with your clients and candidate base. We, we use that proactively in, in a structured manner as part of our outbound cadences, mm. but we don't stipulate to people on a weekly basis the number of posts they have to do. This goes back to, and I'm going to go against the grain here a little bit, and you might disagree with this, but it's like everything. It's not just about that vanity stuff. You have to be able to tie return on effort or return on, on um, it, um, investment to these things. Yep. And the truth is, until someone's got really, really good at cold calling, until someone's got really, really good at sales emails and CV specs and other forms of outreach, I think it's a bolt-on at that point rather than um, mm -hmm. something that should be a as high priority as some of those other outreach options. So we retain some flexibility around it at this moment in time. We're, we're, not, we're not forcing people to do it to a certain amount, but we are encouraging them by kind of demonstrating the potential return on effort. Mm, I 100% agree on return on effort. I'm not sure, I would, I would put LinkedIn on an equal, if not more important frame than cold calling, to be honest, uh, wow. Alex, in the sense that, <clears throat> um, like if I can, if I can get 2,000, I know views, you could argue, are a vanity metric, but 2,000 views, imagine trying to make 2,000 cold calls, right? Or 3,000 or 5,000, like that's... That's apples and pears, though. You know, thousands of... That's apples and pears. Right. 
if you compared, if you compared, if you looked at like for us as a business, right? So I'm going to use us as an example. So it's nice that we're straight getting into this, Mark. Let's have an argument on your podcast. Okay, that will make come good for good, okay, good go for it. Um, look, probably close to fifty percent of our discovery meetings are booked via cold call, and I'm not going to go into what that equates to from a volume perspective, but naturally that requires a decent level of output from a cold calls made to a reach rate, to a positive versus negative initial response, to an engaged conversation, to a disco being booked, and then, you know, further on along that sales funnel. Disco but being discovery call, I guess. Discovery meeting. Yeah. A discovery meeting with a client, yeah. discovery call. So you've got that sales funnel, and there's certain inputs that you have to put into that to be able to then generate your discovery meetings, which in turn take you through the next sales funnel towards a new logo being signed, um, a, a, you know, a, a successful BD outcome. Yes. Um, how much LinkedIn posting would you have to do to be able to generate that same level of return? So for us, it's 50% of our discovery meetings come via cold call. Cool. Um, I, I think it would be very, very, very difficult to have clients doing in, but don't get me wrong, you get inbound from your social media posts, mm -hmm. but realistically, the, the volume and quality of social media posts you would have to do in such a saturated thing, I think is, um, extremely difficult. You can't, you also can't necessarily target your ICPs and your buyer personas in such a, it's spear phishing versus net phishing, isn't it? Cold calling, it's real, um, sort of spear phishing, whereas you're, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. But it okay. Is, it's super targeted. Let me clarify. And by the way, I want to learn your, your sales funnel, uh, because I think you've obviously analyzed it and you, you know what's working for you and which is key. Um, you can't just post stuff and expect like all of your ideal customers to land in your lap. Um, you, you need to follow up. So you need, you notice who's engaging, who's like liking or commenting on your post. Obviously, if they are your ideal customer profile, your ICP, those are the ones you follow up. And now it's so much easier to spark a conversation with them. Whereas if it's a cold call and it take, it might take you 10 attempts to actually get them on the phone, uh, you see them like you've got some kind of prior, uh, engagement on LinkedIn. You can follow up on that with a call or a message and then a call or add them to an email cadence at plus a call or whatever. Your, your probability of actually booking that discovery call has just gone up. I don't know how many times, but significantly, I would say. Couldn't agree more. So it's not like either or. It's not either or. And yeah. I agree wholeheartedly with that. But you're never, sure. never going to make up the volume. You'll never make up the volume doing that, but actually the leads that you yeah. do get are going to be really high value leads, which have got a high probability of turning into something. But I think you've just hit the nail on the head. It's not binary, is it? You, you need all of this stuff included in a multi-touch, multi-channel cadence. And that's the entire point as to why you do all of this stuff, because effectively then you're, you're touching all those different bases. But look, for us, it's, and look, it's market specific as well. I think that's really, really important to outline here. Within our market space, there are some exceptional, some exceptionally strong content producers. Um, there, there's literally thousands of them who are really, really good offering huge amounts of value. So to be able to separate yourself from those individuals where you've literally got the IC, your, your target ICP buyer personas on mm. your post saying good post, obviously it's a little bit more complicated than that, I would suggest is probably a lot harder than in other markets where that value creation around content isn't probably such a go-to um, yeah. go thing. So I think that it, it always depends and it, it, it's definitely a multi-channel, multi-touch approach, which is going to get the best results overall. 100%. Um, multi-channel, multi-touch. Multi you took the words out of yeah, my mouth. Yeah. That's, we, we preach that. So listen, um, let's rewind a little bit because we've kind of gone into the weeds, but I want to... I want to argue some more, Mark. Let's find something about... So let's All find right. something else to argue about. Okay, let's do it. So tell me about um, Strive, why you invested in that company. And not only did you invest, but you actually said, hey, this is such a cool company. I want to actually personally get involved in, you know, in, in growing this thing. Yeah, I knew the guys already. So, that, that, yeah. so, so I'd worked with okay. them before. So they, I, I gave them their first job in recruitment. So the relationship went way back. So first and foremost, I knew them. They're really, really good guys. They're, they're, um, they're both really, really good. Um, you know, there was definitely complementary. There was shared values and shared vision there with them and myself. Um, 
And it was also a really interesting market. So the market that I came from, Liquid, the, the business that I built with my previous business partner, it was a contract business. It was, it was, it was purely UK focused. It was public sector. This is a international perm business within um, software sales. So the, the two markets couldn't, couldn't be any more different. So I think what was really interesting to me was that it was a market that actually intellectually was really, really interesting because it's all about sales. It's all about business. It's all about scaling. Um, so actually, there was some massive alignment and similarities there with recruitment. So immediately, that was really appealing to me. But also, you know, the, the business we built at Liquid we, we really saw the opportunity. I saw the opportunity there to be able to support the guys, to be able to put in the type of scaling infrastructure, which the market we're in now, it's not dominated by a small number of players. There's a huge, globally, there's just a huge number of kind of boutique recruiters. There's no particularly yes. large, like dominant whales in this space. So I thought that was really interesting as well. Yep. The opportunity to be able to grow something in a market space where there's lots and lots of good players. But not typically those, you know, those really, really large kind of like gorillas in the market. So I thought there was an opportunity there. Video interviewing has been part of mainstream recruitment for over a decade now. But have you figured it out yet? Video interviewing certainly looks good as part of your recruitment service. It gives you the appearance of being a cutting edge recruitment business owner on the front line of technology. But is it paying its way? Are you getting more new business, more repeat business because you're using video interviewing? Or is it starting to look more like a financial drain on your recruitment business? Our sponsor and trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. Their video interviewing is just one part of a complete suite of recruitment tools, so you don't need to spend a fortune on yet another tech platform. Everything you need is included in one package. Additionally, they provide training for your recruitment firm to make sure you're using the technology to the best possible effect for your existing clients, as well as how to use it to attract new clients. If you're thinking of investing in video interviewing, don't take another step until you've requested your free demonstration from iIntro. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retain to book your free consultation. See for yourself how to use video interviewing to get a true return on your investment. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. All right, awesome. So let's give the, the co-founders a shout out. What, who, uh, who are the guys that you worked with and you ended up doing business with? Adam Richardson and Harrison yep. Scott. All right. So, um, so yeah, Adam's the MD and um, uh, Harrison is the global sales director. And Fantastic. Then, um, it's still a reasonably small team at this moment in time. So we've built a team of about 20 at this moment. So okay. We're still going through that process of, of getting everything in order so that we can really start to scale um, proactively. And those, all those offices on your website, like, are you really, are you guys all in Manchester or do you actually have people in France, in the US, in Amsterdam? Uh, no, we've got, we've got an offer, uh, physical locations. We're in uh, Manchester in the UK and we've just yep. opened up in Tampa in Florida. Tampa. Okay. Awesome. Cool. And, um, so you've scaled to 20 people and, Tell me about um, how you structured the the business in order to scale effectively. I, I guess if you look at the things that you need to be able to do to scale effectively, I, I did a post on this not too long ago. What was that post? And and people ask me that sometimes. And there's so many things you need to do right to scale successfully. I sometimes flip that on its head and say, "All right, well." What, what are the biggest blockers to prevent you from scaling a recruitment business? I kind of like feel like that's actually a really yeah. good logical starting point to say, well, let's not do these four things which will prevent us from scaling. And then everything else kind of can almost fit into place a little bit around that. So the, the first one is leadership. You have, sorry, Mark, did, did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember that post. In fact, I think it was, was it this week or last week? It was fairly recent. And there was like three or four things. Um, but I, I guess what I mean by um, the the how you've structured, like, can we get even more detailed and granular in terms of, like, is it a 360 model? Is it 180? Like you said to me uh, in a previous conversation that you guys have taken a lot of ideas and inspiration from your market, which is SaaS companies. Yep. Could you talk about how you have sort of mirrored, either intentionally or accidentally, you've mirrored the way that a lot of your customers have scaled? We, I've never been, I've never like, Liquid, my previous business was a 180 model. 
Um, Strive isn't a 180 model. It's kind of more like a 270 model. But what we do is we play to people's strengths. We're, we're strong believers in strengths-based management. I think 360, this whole debate about 180 versus 360, I find really interesting because the truth is, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. There's different models. Yeah. And I think the reality is you pick a model and then the the systems, the support, the structure you put in place that aligns with and supports that model, that's what's going to determine whether you're successful or not. It's not whether it's a 180 or a 360, which will be the ter- determining factor. If you look at some of the fastest growing recruitment companies that have come out of the UK within the last decade or so, a lot of them are 360 models. So although that's not my thing, yeah. I, I'm in no way suggesting that's not a really, really good way to be able to grow a recruitment business. It's got some real strengths and advantages. We, we, we definitely focus on specialization because you know it's my belief that it's, it's easier to scale if you have specialization. And I think also from a risk management perspective, it's easier to build a machine where effectively people have got much more focused roles within that machine and they run a particular aspect of the process rather than having to run all aspects of the process. So that for me is one of the challenges of 360. There's not many people who are suited to um, hunting, farming and delivery. Mm -hmm. It's really, really difficult to find someone. And I think for me, strengths aren't just about what you're good at. It's also about what um, energizes you. So just because you can mm. do something, unless it energizes you, I'd argue it isn't a strength. And a lot of a lot of people who enjoy the new logo stuff, they they really they don't enjoy the delivery stuff and vice versa. So even though they can do it, it de-energizes them and then they become demotivated and often go somewhere which is going to play to their strengths. A hundred percent. So you I, I was just gonna interject because in the SaaS space, you've got SDRs, then you have account executives, then you have customer success, right? Yes. Is there an equivalent in your business or, you know, because that's what you just described, hunting, farming, and then delivery. Yes. Uh, sort of, you know, over overlaps on there. Um, it, it does. I wish, because uh, I wasn't, I was a 360 guy, but I shouldn't have been. And uh, I was, I could do delivery, but it definitely didn't energize me. I love the new logo stuff. And I would have performed way better if that had existed back, back in the, in the day. So how... How do you actually, how does that, what does that look like at Strive? Well, we, we have multiple career pathways, first and foremost. So again, this is the type mm-hmm. of stuff. And again, I ramble away. So sometimes I get distracted from the original question. I think you were asking about some of the things that we've put in place, which is yeah. going to enable us to be able to grow. And I think like, like most things, you can't just eat, eat. If you want to scale a recruitment business, you can't just keep adding heads and heads and heads. You have to build some of the infrastructure yeah. which is going to support that growth. One of those things is career pathways. So I think what you have to do is you have to be quite thoughtful and you have to be quite considered and you have to be able to offer a pathway for someone that plays to their particular strengths. So you as the example, Mark, it's, it wouldn't be sensible to put you down the through six, 360 route. And let's say you as an example, right? Let's say you loved the BD stuff, but you know what? You didn't really enjoy... Um, managing other people. You weren't particularly, um, naturally, this isn't a good example with yourself, but you weren't naturally inclined towards coaching and developing others. What would be the point of saying, well, look, you're a big biller now. The only route you've got to do is into management. Mm. So that would be a really bad example. And I think that's an example of what we do. We say, right, you've got to do all of these three things in 360, whether you enjoy them or not. And then if you're really good at that and you're billing lots of money, the only next route for you to go down is into management. So I think that's one of the mistakes that recruitment companies make from a growth and a career development perspective. So I think you have to actually build a much more, um, uh, you, you have to give options with you within those career pathways. So the guys who come into Strive, they come in and typically they go straight onto delivery. They learn the role on delivery. That then gives them the opportunity to progress up a couple of stages. Each stage, they have to be able to demonstrate new learning and new skills. And then once they get to a certain point, they effectively can become key account managers. So they move on to our large accounts and can act as um, delivery individuals, but actually do the account management piece that goes with it. Additionally, on the other side of that, they can also move on to New Logo. New Logo is the BD-orientated stuff, so they can do that. They've also got the path within BD where actually alongside those key account managers, the BD people themselves have a real strong say in the account management. 
but we kind of have a dual management piece there where effectively the BD guys focus on a lot of the strategic stuff from an account management perspective, i.e. expanding the account. Mm -hmm. And the delivery guys focus on the tactical stuff, i.e. delivering to that account. So what you've got there is you've got a real sort of team ethos where actually those two individuals, although they do different things, there's still a really unified approach towards providing the customer with the best possible level of service while at the same time aligning their interests with our interests. Because I think, again, with the 180 model, there's sometimes a tendency, the BD guy or girl wins an account, hands it over, their job done. And then actually what happens is because of that break between those two things, the customer ends up getting a really shitty experience, pardon my French, Mm -hmm. because actually it just doesn't work as well. So we've kind of got a slightly uh, different model to that in the sense that whether you do delivery or you do BD, you've also got the ability to be able to have still involvement in the key accounts so that you're working together to maximize the opportunity and provide the best possible level of service. Alongside all of that stuff, there is the option to do 360. Um, It's not my preferred option. But again, if someone was massively... I was a good 360 guy. Mm -hmm. I really, really liked the variety. I was good at 360. So you know what? Maybe I would have wanted to do 360 and have been a little bit more of a lone wolf where I didn't have to involve myself so much working alongside other people, as an example. So there is an option for that, although it's not my preferred option. Um, And then lastly, you've got the management route. So we've got a really, as I've been describing there, we've got a really, really structured career pathway for managers to go into effectively a team leader role, then a management role, not a billing initially, then a non-billing manager role, all the way up to associate director and director level. So again, we've got those career pathways, which mean we can really tailor um, the career to the individual rather than saying, right, here's the career pathway and this is what you've got to do and this is what it looks like and this is the only path that you've got. Mm. so Alex, let me uh, interject here because uh, I love the concept. Um, my my question is, mm-hmm. like, look, the money is in the client side of the business, right? And what I mean by that is they pay the fees. And ultimately, if you don't have clients, you don't have orders, then it doesn't matter how many candidates you have, you're not going to do deals. And people may argue with me on that. But to me, it's not an equal 50-50 you know, um, role in terms of, in terms of, uh, importance in growing the business. And then I, I guess alongside that, my question then is if someone has come is prefers the delivery side and they're, they haven't been on the BD side, can they really ascend to leadership roles where they're managing the sales guys? Like how does, what are the, what are the development opportunities beyond account manager for someone who's come up through the delivery route? The the second point is the easiest one to answer. We've got two different okay. management routes, whether you're on the delivery side of the business or whether you're on the BD side of the business. So we have BD mm-hmm. managers who manage the BD guys and we have delivery managers and both of them have career paths which go up towards director level. Um, without going into too much detail onto the specifics of our commission structure, I'm not sure I'm 100% in agreement with you. Okay, I think for us, Winning that initial account is incredibly difficult in our marketplace, but we have different channels that we use. We do direct client work. We do VC work, as an example. Um, We also win a lot of business via marketing, whether that's social media or more targeted marketing campaigns to our particular ICPs. So we use lots of different sources to be able to um, identify client opportunities. One of the things that is incredibly important in our market is the ability to expand accounts. I think that's amazingly important. So it's not just a case of constantly winning new accounts and then having high churn, because again, you can't scale a business if you've got high churn, right? It doesn't matter how good you are at BD. Yes. If you're not retaining those accounts and expanding them within our space, you're not going to be able to hold on to them. But we have a split commission structure, which again, you have to have a commission structure, I believe, which is geared towards driving the key values and Um, business drivers of your business. And one of ours is ensuring that our customers get the best possible level of service while at the same time, we make sure that we're making the most of that. Because if our clients are really, really happy with the quality of service we provide and we fill all of their jobs, guess what? It doesn't take long before they start using us exclusively, um, you know, and kicking out all of their other partners. So we get to grow with that company. Mm -hmm. So 
I think you've got to take all of that stuff into account. And once you've got an understanding of what your business model is and how you're going to scale and grow, you then work backwards and you put a commission structure in place, which is going to ensure that your people earn loads of money. The worst thing in the world is to bring delivery consultants in. And then for us, it would be crazy to bring those people in, spend a year or two training them up, getting them really, really good, but then not to really well remunerate them. Because again, at the end of the day, those guys will leave to an organization that is prepared to remunerate them well. So we we believe strongly in paying above market value to our delivery guys. Mm. We believe strongly in paying above market value to our um to our BD guys as well. But we have a good split to make sure those two things are aligned. All right. Are you able to say what the what the breakdown is? No. No, I just, uh, okay. I just maybe it's not the right <laughs> thing. I, I, I uh, yeah, no. I, I'm not going to go into that level of detail other than we have no a logical problem. split, depending upon the different stages of the process that you manage, you take an appropriate share of the commission. So again, it feels like everyone's working together. Everyone's goals are aligned. Mm-hmm. And also, again, yes. from a strategy perspective, everyone gets the fact that we don't make money as a business making one or two placements with a client. We For make sure, money 100%. as a business making 20 or 30 placements with a client. So our entire yeah. strategy, our organizational structure our roles and responsibilities and our commission planning is all geared towards that objective, which is turning into like that trusted go-to provider for a particular client. Awesome. So Alex, the big, uh, the thing I'd love to spend the rest of our time talking about, which is something it sounds like you have really designed, um, you know, intelligently is your, your kind of sales funnel, your client acquisition funnel. And the reason being like, we've seen the pendulum swing, especially in tech, but, uh, and not all markets, some markets are still extremely candor driven, but, um, you know, whereas in 2021 and into 2022, we were trying to convince recruiters and recruiting business owners, you need to be marketing, you need to be doing business development. And they're like, no, we don't have time. We're just, we can't even keep up with demand. We're we have too many jobs to fill. If we, if we focus on BD, we're going to, we're going to miss opportunity to fill jobs. And I'm like, I'm telling you, man, like nothing lasts forever. And this is going to come back and bite you hard. And of course, that's exactly what's happened. And now people are like, Oh, I don't have any jobs in the pipeline. Um, so what are you guys doing on the BD front that you have found most effective? You mentioned this like multi-step process involves cold calling and, you know, could you elaborate on that a little more? Yeah. So we, I think we've got a reasonably advanced approach to how we prospect, but, but we, we mm-hmm. do, um, I guess it starts with how we manage, right? So there, there, there's okay. critical core sales processes in every sales business. There, there, there's, there's far, well, technically there's four sales processes. You've got territory management, you've got call management, mm-hmm you've got opportunity management and you've got account management. So first and foremost, mm. I think you need to be able to look at those. The fifth one is sales enablement, but you know that's more of a management process rather than a core sales process. Those four core sales processes, I think you need to be able to map them out. You need to be able to build an optimal working structure, which effectively offers a blueprint for success for the salesperson, mm-hmm. de- dependent upon which aspect of the, um, the prospecting they're doing. So territory management, right? That's effectively your outbound prospecting. That's about building a multi-touch, multi-channel approach, which looks at all of the different avenues or channels you can go to market via. It's about putting them in priority order. It's about doing them an, for an appropriate amount, amount of time, because you've got to take into account, I think, the law of diminishing returns when you're prospecting clients. Anyone mm. could prospect a client for six months, but the reality is if 90% of your business or your wins come in the first two or three weeks, should you be prospecting for another five months after that period, if you're only getting 10% of your return in the following five months. So I think you've got to take that into account. Once you've understood what your different channels are, once you've mapped out which ones are highest priority, and therefore you can put them, the heart, the more higher, the higher priority actions you should be taking, you should be doing at a higher level of volume comparatively. And then what you can do is you can structure it in a way so that you've got best practices for each of those particular activities. Are you worried about keeping your recruitment firm up to date with the latest technology? After all, your clients expect you to be ahead of the curve. But how do you select the right tech for your recruitment firm 
and make sure that you earn enough new business as a direct result to make back the cost of your investment. Which is why our friends at iIntro provide in-depth coaching alongside their technology to help you get the most out of your investment. They offer an extensive suite of tools, but let's just take one example, their behavioral assessment tool. It's built right into their online system so you don't have to buy or learn a whole new platform. They also include training on how to use behavioral assessments to improve your pitching technique while also increasing the longevity of your placements to a staggering 96% after 12 months. For a free demo of iIntro's suite of recruitment tools, including behavioral assessment, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Remember, when you engage with our sponsors, you also help support this podcast. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained, then follow the instructions to get started. So we were talking about cold calling, and that's something you can tell I get really passionate about. Awesome. I just don't think many people are particularly good at cold calling. True. Yeah, I think that's people, the honest truth. Yeah, and yeah. I think cold calling gets a terrible name because people aren't very good at it. And I think what you have to do, this is something I love about SaaS, right? They, they have such a forensic, scientific way that they approach everything that they do. Um, and I think the recruitment industry is a little bit behind with some of that stuff sometimes. But for instance, yeah. I think if you get really, really good at cold calling, your response, your engagement rates and your return on effort should be really, really strong. Does that mean you still ha don't have to make a high volume of cold calls? Of course you do. But I think from a data perspective, if you start to understand what your sales funnel looks like when cold calling, so this is what you were talking about at the beginning. If I know I have to make a thousand cold calls in a month and I've got a reach rate of 15%, the reach rate is the number of people who answer the phone. That means 150 people are going to answer the phone to me. If I know that I can then maybe get, and I'm just going to make some numbers up here, right? These aren't real statistics, but let's say 33%, a third of the people that answer the phone to me, if I have a really strong opener and value proposition, will give me the opportunity to engage them in a conversation which lasts two or three minutes. I would say that's a positive outcome from my reach rate of a third of those people. That means I'm going to have 50 good conversations with clients on a monthly basis based upon that initial thousand cold calls. If I can turn 50% of those positive engagements into discovery meetings, that's 25 discovery meetings. If I can turn 50% of those discovery meetings into proposals, that's I've forgotten the original number. I said 25, 25 yep. proposals I'm putting out the door. If 25 proposals, if I get a, no, we're another 25, third, 25 discovery meetings. So let's say it turns into 12 proposals yep. as an example. And let's say 50% of my proposals turn into new logos. I've just won six new logos. Yeah. So all of a sudden, what I've got is I've got a sales funnel there where I can understand scientifically what my inputs and my outputs look like. And I think this is where, and again, I'm a massive proponent of KPIs. And yep. just like with cold calling, I believe strongly that the reason KPIs get a bad name is just because they're badly used, they're badly implemented, totally. and people don't really understand them. And the truth is, KPIs are just not about volume of activity because that's why they get a bad rep. Managers just give non-tailored blanket KPIs to people and say, you must make a thousand phone calls this month. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to give you any support and development on actually how to make those phone calls. I'm not going to give you a blueprint for success. I'm not going to teach you best practice around all of the different ways that you need to manage a call and work someone through the different aspects of that cold call. And then I'm just going to hope that stuff comes out the other end. But if you actually start to approach it with that scientific data orientated mindset, what you understand, therefore, is it's not just about the volume of calls that you do, because that is important. It's also about your conversion rate through each stage of the funnel. That is the best indicator as to the quality of the aspect of the cold call that you're doing. Hundred percent. So if I if I'm you know if if I'm doing if I if I get lots of engaged customers who will give me the time of day, but I can't convert a high enough level of those into discovery meetings, I know there's something wrong. Or I can look at a consultant and say, well, hang on a minute, Joe Bloggs' conversion rate is seventy five percent. Yours is twenty five percent. Immediately. Just by looking at that data, I can look at an individual consultant and I can say, this is the biggest blockage at this moment from a quality perspective, which is going to unleash your potential to get 
that much many more people through your sales funnel and increase your number of new logos. So love it. I've been rambling for a long time there. No, but. that's okay. So Alex, let me reflect on a couple of things you just said. So I know you want to argue because it makes a more interesting conversation, but I, I, I agree 100%. Uh, I'm sure. a huge KPI man for all the reasons you just said. And I think um, it's just people, so-called leaders in recruitment have given it a bad name by n- managing it in a in not in the appropriate way. It's It's really just a way for people to understand what the sales process looks like, what their ratios are, and how can I optimize my results and get better results with less effort and um, and stay on track and stay focused on the right things. Um, so let's take your cold calling example. By the way, when I started my training business in 2001, my bread and butter was teaching recruiters how to cold call because that's how I did it and, and I, I got good at it. Um, and over time, what I oh, found school. is- Yeah, but the thing is people don't want to do it. And so I was trying to make a living sure. teaching people stuff they didn't want to do. And I was like, this isn't, uh, this isn't a good, a good business model. So, um, now, like, I would say these days, it's so rare that recruiters and salespeople are even willing to cold call that if you are the one who is actually doing it, you have a good chance of standing out and actually capturing, uh, your prospect's attention. But I'll tell you the biggest frustration or the hurdle, people fall at the first hurdle, Alex, which is, that I can't remember what you called it, the percentage of people you actually managed to, the dials that turn into connects basically, because it, and, and this is the feedback people tell me as to why they don't do it. They're like, yeah, but no one picks up. You know, I, I have to make, if I make a hundred calls, I get three conversations or, or whatever the, the, the number is. How, I mean, apart from just the numbers game of volume of calls, how are you guys maximizing your chances of actually getting the conversation and, you know, getting someone to a call? Well, first, first, firstly, I think having a local number is going to immediately triple the number of people who will answer the phone to you. I think that's really important. I think the other one probably important is data quality. Mm-hmm. So if you're making, you know, you need to make sure you've got the best data possible to be able to make those phone calls in as quick and efficient manner as possible. So I'd say, I'd say they're two key things to look at if you're struggling with reach rate. Yeah. Um, look, since we opened our US office, it's obvious that our reach rate has gone up exponentially with with the US market. That's not obvious. So, why, why do you think that is? Because people will answer the phone when they don't think it's necessarily a sales call. They're more likely to answer the phone when it's a when it's a local number. Mm, um, okay. You know, I think that's probably the most simple answer there. Do you answer the phone to an international number, especially if you're the VP of sales or a CRO? of a tech firm, mm. do you answer the phone to a UK number? Oh, probably not, because you probably know it's going to be a recruiter. So I think <laughs> first and foremost, I think that's really important. Um, you know, So we've got a lovely reputation, us UK guys as recruiters. Everyone wants to speak to us on the phone. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So um, <laughs> okay. you know, I, think that, I think there's a couple of ways that you can look at your reach rate there. But there's, there's no getting away from the volume as well. I think I'd be really disappointed if I made a hundred calls and I only had a 3% reach rate. That would be, that would be poor. So I would suggest that you need to look at what's going into those calls to make sure you're maximizing the likelihood of increasing your reach rate. But in good times, reach rate could be 10, 15%. Um, it shouldn't be 3%. And if it, again, understanding the data, right? Understanding what good looks like. Um, I think also gives you a good way to be able to look at the different levers within your business and say, well, hang on a minute, that isn't working like it should be working. And it just gives you such a brilliant way that if you've got a robust process and you really understand that process and what good looks like, you should say, well, our reach rate's shitty. Mm. Why is our reach rate being so poor this quarter? And it gives you the opportunity to delve into it. Why is Why are so many of our sales emails going to junk? Mm. You know, it's one of those things, right? It's like, why are our sales emails not being viewed? So again, that's yes. probably the equivalent of a reach rate thing. So again, it there's is, all yeah. sorts of technical reasons why your sales emails are going into junk. Yeah. So it gives you the opportunity to identify the key blockages within your sales processes. Yeah. And this is just one that we're talking about, territory management, right? Yeah. Um, but once you've mapped out those processes and you've got a clear understanding of them and you can look at them really forensically, I think, you know, the, the, let the data guide you because the data is the truth. It's not just opinion. It's not like excuses. It's not no one's picking up the phone. Yeah. It's, well, if no one's picking up the phone, why not? And actually looking at your data, people are picking up the phone, but you're not successfully engaging them. Let's delve into why that's the case. Yes. 
Well, that's yeah, exactly. But that is something which it, you can you can manage because you can try different approaches. You can try different openers and and you know asking high quality questions really refine your value prop and 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 so on. So I think that is an exciting opportunity. The one that people find frustrating is like calling all day and not speaking to anyone. But you're saying that you think a 10% is is perfectly achievable. Maybe not in this not market. More. Maybe mm. not in this market. But again, okay. I think it all depends upon your business, right? If you're phoning yeah. scientists, they're probably like, like techies probably don't answer the phone as much yeah. as salespeople. So there's an yeah. example. So again, I don't think this is necessarily as, as clear cut as saying this is the answer. I think yeah. what you have to do is find your baseline in your particular business, in your particular market, in your particular environment. That baseline will start to make you understand what good and great looks like and what underperformance looks like. Going back to your previous point, if someone has got a really poor conversion rate through a particular aspect of the funnel, stat rank your guys. If you've got mm. 10 recruitment consultants who all do the same job and they all have a sales funnel and you can track all of their data, if Mark, if your conversion rate from proposal to new logo is three times as good as mine, well, I'd suggest there's a really good learning opportunity there for me to yes. learn from you or even better for the business to learn from what Mark's doing. So that is yeah. my opportunity then to identify that and say, right, the biggest lead indicator of increased Im or improved performance is actually getting everyone to the same standard of Mark in this particular aspect of the funnel. Let's delve into what Mark does differently. Let's delve into what everyone else isn't doing that what Mark isn't doing. Let's turn it into a training and coaching opportunity. And then let's measure that moving forward and really try and move the needle Definitely. on that particular aspect of the funnel. Are you guys recording your calls and then analyzing, you know, good calls and the, the people who are strong in particular aspects to almost create clips or, you know, training uh, trainings from that? I, I love the clip idea. We don't actually do that. Look, we, we, we pre our call management, right? It's a really simple, it's a three-stage simple process. Mm -hmm. You prep for the call, you execute the call, you debrief the call. I think, I think, I think some recruiters only do one, maybe two of those at best. Mm. I, I don't think sometimes as recruiters, we're good enough at debriefing. So we mm. believe strongly in debriefing after calls because that gives us our real coaching and learning opportunities, but we don't necessarily then use clips and then send them around to the rest of the business. But we do, we do bring them into a group session where we talk through example calls as, as a group and we kind of like have that peer learning thing. Yeah. Like with the software now, you can, I mean, you know, better than, than I do, you can, record calls, have them transcribed instantly, you know, highlight keywords to search for like, what percentage of the time was Alex talking? What percentage of the time was Mark talking? You know, uh, what questions did Mark ask? You know, and, and so on. You can really analyze those calls, what went well, what didn't go well. But then you could create almost a library of, you know, this, these are three examples, five examples, 10 examples of, you know, effective call openers that led to that three minute conversation. These are examples of those three minute conversations that led to booking a discovery call and so on. You could almost have, um, yeah, anyway, you can do with that well, what we, you will. We've got but, a library. Yeah. We've got a library, which we use as part of our training, which is that, that type of thing. We've, look, this is why it's so hard to build a scalable recruitment business because you have to build processes which are repeatable yeah. and predictable, right? And, and they offer yeah. scalability because of it. So it's taken time to get us to that point where you got to build the process first. And then once you've built the process, you can kind of over map the, over, overlap the technology. That tends to be the way to go. And then you can really optimize it, can't you? So yeah. there's some amazing things out there. You know, just, just to mention the one that I'm quite excited by is Gong. Like, you know, everyone yeah. in SaaS uses Gong. Um, and I expect that will be something that will be becoming more and more um, used within recruitment over the next few years. Uh, is that falling into the sales enablement category? It does. So it's, um, it's uh, sales intelligence, I think they call it, revenue intelligence software. Okay. All right. Interesting. We don't have time to delve into that because I want to just, you've given four, uh, so it was territory management, uh, call management, sales management. What was the fourth one again? Opportunity management. Opportunity management, and, right, um, right. Account management. And account and management. And account management. Also, right, right. So uh, why do you call and it then territory management? sales enablement. Sales enablement, right. Because I do you stole call it, it from the Americans. Okay, all right. Because I stole it from the Americans. Territory I, management. I, I, I honoured the... the fact that there's an amazing book by a guy mm. called, this like blew my mind, so I'm a really okay. voracious reader and I love this stuff. So there's a book by a guy called Jason Jordan called Cracking the Sales Management Code. Okay. Um, 
And there's there's another book that goes with that called Crushing Quota. For anyone who's interested in, in being as nerdy and geeky as me about sales processes, check out those two books. They blew my mind. They really changed the way that I thought about process management. And they gave a really crystal clear, like empirically, like um, a data-led and kind of proof. It's like almost like academic work, right? The level of detail some of these guys go into. So it kind of mapped out the core sales processes within businesses and I stole it from there. So I, I wanted to honor the fact that I'd start stolen mm. someone else's. So we kept the terms territory. Cool. All right. I love it. And uh, the in terms of all the channels, so you, cold calling is one we've we've focused on you, but you've also mentioned email. What what are what are the core channels that you guys concentrate on? Um, most of them. So we, we do cold calling, we do sales emails, which are um, non-CV specs. We also do CV specking, we do video, we do voice note, we do voicemails, we do social media stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, within LinkedIn, you've then got those all those different aspects where you can approach, I, whether it's an in-mail, whether it's, um, you know, uh, Connection social request, touches, whether it's voice notes. Message. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I think... Uh, I think that's probably most of that. that's the the ones that I could think of off the, off the top of my head. But awesome. all of that is built into a structured cadence which we run, and then we can actually analyze the effectiveness of that cadence based upon the data mm. that's generated using outreach tools. So it gives Love us it. the opportunity to understand what's working and what isn't working, and adapt and pull those different levers based upon ROB. So we in my client acquisition blueprint training, I lay out it's a theoretical, and people need to, as you say, it's not. One thing is going to work for everybody, but I lay out basically 12 touches in 21 days. Do you guys have a formula? Like how many touches? And yeah. um, it's similar to that again, without go, without giving away all of our secrets, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we, it, yeah. I, I feel like it's nice to talk about the theory, right? And, and try and give that as value without necessarily going into the intricate detail of exactly how we do it. But yeah, we, we have something similar to that. Okay, cool. And how, like, we're really trying to encourage people to use more video when they're prospecting with some degree of success. Like the, some people have really embraced it and, and, and dived into it. But I find with anything, people go like, Oh, I, I tried that and didn't work. I'm like, well, <clears throat> how many times did you try it? And like, did you try diff, like, did you experiment to find? Cause I promise you it is working for some recruiters out there. So I don't see any reason it wouldn't work for you how how much of a um how much of a tool is that for you guys in in your business yeah we like use per, video uh, when i say so video, video I mean personalized videos sent to target prospects yeah. yes we use videos so um and again it's it's part of our cadence look what what you're referencing there is the the challenge you sometimes get is it doesn't well how many times do you do it three it's like well what what genuinely you know it's it's like going back to science class isn't it you'd have a hypothesis and then you need to test that hypothesis. And it's the law of large numbers. If you don't do something, the, the, the law of large numbers is the more times you do something, the more likely it will is it will revert to the mean or the average um, outcome. So yeah. if you send, if you've got a 5% response rate on videos and you do it a hundred times, you're going to get five responses. Random example I've just thrown out there. Um, but if you only send three videos, it's quite likely you'll get zero responses. So right. When you run these A/B tests, you have to. You can't just do send three videos. What you've really got to do is send at least a hundred, and then start to baseline that as your starting point with regards to whether that's worthwhile from a return on effort perspective. Because if it takes you three days to send a hundred videos and you only get one response, I'd suggest you're probably better off doing cold calling. But if you right. send, if it takes you half a day to send a hundred videos and you typically get five responses that could well be worthwhile from a return on effort perspective. Yeah. So again, it's just being able to run those, those experiments and figure out what works. Amazing. Um, by the way, I found the LinkedIn post that you're referencing earlier. It was from two days ago. So a recruitment leader in a business looking to scale should have only three objectives. Number one, to maximize their team's productivity. Number two, to maximize their team's growth. Number three, to develop more leaders. Everything else is a means of achieving one of these three objectives. That's it, just three. Annoyingly, though, each one tends to be really, really difficult. I think that's brilliant, that, uh, that LinkedIn post. And you've had a huge response to it as well. We'll put a link in, in that to the, to the show notes. Um, and look, I'd love to do this again, Alex, like sooner than three years from now, because 
we've only really, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. We've talked quite a lot about territory management and that was super interesting. So I, I appreciate that. Um, is there any final thoughts that you want to share in the last couple of minutes we've got together? Um, not particularly. I've really mm. enjoyed it. Um, I don't like arguing, by the way. I just like to have a, a heated debate. Anything, <laughs> anything that I can get sales and recruitment geeky on. I, I love the fact that it's a good opportunity just to talk through stuff, isn't it? It's really nice to be able to hear divergent viewpoints. I think sometimes, like everything in life, everyone gets stuck in like this or that camp. And actually, yes. it's really nice to be able to discuss this stuff because there's, there's many, many different ways to skin a cat. Um, yep. So it's really good to be able to get that feedback. And I think we've agreed on on so many things, aren't we? I've, I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, definitely we should do it more more frequently than everything. I'll have run out of hair in three years' time. <laughs> I'll, I'll have gone completely bald, Mark. So please help me. Don't, don't leave it another three years this time. Hilarious. Alex, that was awesome. Uh, let's definitely do it again. And thanks for you know sharing your experience and, and successes and learnings with, uh, with our listeners on The Resilient Recruiter. Amazing. Thanks for your time, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, Please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.